You are scared to death. You're an asshole. That's lovely. I mean, what are you doing in your life that is so terrific? My life is fine. Yeah, sure. Yeah. You don't know about me. Yeah. I know all about you. You know inside. bullshit. Why are you going to shout? Excuse me, uh, can we have two coffees here? Sorry, so? So, so what? So, tell me. Minions? No, thanks. So, uh, what was it like? You know, a lot of money, Tucson, Mexico City, Bogota, drifting, you know, okay? Okay. It got twisted and ugly and empty. It was over already, but we kept moving through the moves. It ended very badly. Now, I get up in the morning, I take a shower, I go to work, I have a job, I have a social security card, and my life is very ordinary, very boring, which is good, because it's solid. You are marking time is what you are. You're backing off, you're hiding out, you're waiting for a bus that you hope never comes because you don't want to get on it anyway because you don't want to go anywhere, all right? Do you have a license for this? <laughs> all right, how much was you moving? Nothing to till the end. And then kilo amounts. I don't I don't know. Well then what? He's dead. Hmm? He is dead. That is good because he's an asshole. There was a lot of love in the beginning. The guy was an asshole. There was love in the beginning. Big asshole. I mean, he puts you in a box. You know the kind of things they do to you ten times a day if you do a bit in Columbia? Do you? Jesus Christ! Don't shout in here! <laughs> I was alone. I had no money, no clothes, no visa, standing on the corner of Bogota and Columbia. Things did happen. Where were you in prison? Would you pass a cream, please? So we had... The war... Whoa, God! Hey, can we some uh, new cream here? What's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? It's cottage cheese. Uh, the warden there was uh, Joe Regan, Meatball Joe. That slob was a penologist. I'm a jet airplane pilot. I did 11 years. I got out, what, four years ago. What'd you go up for? I stole $40. $40? Yeah. Started with a two-year bit, parole in six months. But then right away, I got into this problem with these two guys. They tried to turn me out. So I picked up uh, nine more on, on a manslaughter beef, some other things. I was 20 when I went in, 31 when I come out. Uh, you don't uh, you don't count months and years. Uh, you don't do time that way. What do you mean? Why? Why? You gotta forget time. Uh, you gotta not give a fuck if you live or die. Uh, you gotta get to where nothing means nothing. I'll tell you a story all about it. Once there was this uh, Captain Morphus. 
this uh, 300 pound slob, he couldn't write his name. And he had this crew of uh, 16 or 17 guards and cons, and prison groups, you know, crews. They would uh, <clears throat> go into these cells and grab these young guys and bring them up to hydrotherapy in the mental ward, uh, gangbang. And if a guy puts up a struggle, they beat him half to death and he winds up in a funny farm. And Anyway, word comes down that I am next. And I do not know what I am supposed to do. I, uh, I'm scared. 11, 30, 12, uh, lights come on, and uh, I got this pipe from, uh, from plumbing. And uh, I whack the first uh, guard in the shins, and I go through a convict and another convict. And anyway, I get to Morphis, and I whack him across the head twice. Boom. <clears throat> and then they jump all over me, do a bunch of things. I spend six months in the hospital ward, but... Uh, Morphous, he is also fucked up real good. Uh, cerebral hematoma, they pension him out, and he can't walk straight, and he dies two years later, which is a real loss to the planet Earth. Meanwhile, I gotta go back into the uh, mainstream population, and I know the minute I hit the yard, I am a dead man. So I hit the yard, so you know what happens. nothing happens because uh, I, I don't mean nothing to myself I don't care about me I don't care about nothing you know and then uh, I know from that day that I survived because I achieved that mental attitude and then uh, <clears throat> see later I, I worked this out Sell on it. What is this? I mean, that is my life. Uh, and uh, nothing, nobody can stop me from making that happen. And uh, right there, that would be you. Who, who's the old man here? That is David Oakler Bertineau. He's a master thief, a master. And a great man. He's like, he was like a father. He taught me everything that I know about what I do. And I told him about you. Did you cut these out from um, magazines and... Yeah, newspapers, whatever. Why do you all of these dead people? Inside, you are on ice from time. Uh, you can't even die right, you know, and here... Here, people grow, they get old, they die, children come after. Just a cycle, you know? I don't know. I... Yes, you do. You do. You don't know, you don't know from one day to the next whether you're going to be killed, go home, or get busted. Look, I have run out of time. I have lost it all. And so I can't, I can't work fast enough to catch up, and I can't 
run fast enough to catch up, and the only thing that catches me up is doing my magic act. But it ends, you know? It will end. When I got this, right there, it ends, it's over. And so I'm just asking you to be with me. We adopt. I, I am not ready. See, and and I have my life, so I, I can't. What? I mean, what? What is going on in your life that is so terrific? Mine's been a mess. <laughs> so I was just, I was just thinking, you know, that just maybe between the two of us. We can make something, something happen, something special, something really nice, you know. So I'm just, uh, I'm just asking you uh, to uh, look. And I got a way now that I, I can make it happen faster. I mean, much, much faster. And uh, I'm just, I'm just asking you. God, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would always you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 307, Thief. There are very few things that bring me the type of joy as the title sequence in this movie. The font, the little whatever caption promotion in the bottom of it. You don't see that shit in movies anymore. Yeah, well, it's a very stylized, unique very distinct looking film top to bottom front to back yeah actually between this and manhunter michael mann is one of the directors of the 80s (laughs) well he is certainly a director of the 80s. there you go how about that for bold statements well yeah i think that he undoubtedly had a huge influence on the aesthetic of the 80s and what we would come to think of as the best of the Mm -hmm. 80s style on that end of it. So before we jump into Thief, a film that, I don't know, maybe people are not super familiar with. I don't know what the level of interest in this movie is, but if you haven't seen it, we're going to have some free places to stream it coming up. So I don't know. This feels like one for us rather than one for the masses, but hopefully people are interested in definitely the early work of Michael Mann. The first time I ever saw this was with you and I think like you were kind of pointing out some of the influence on Drive, which was a movie that we both enjoyed thoroughly. Yeah, I have some stuff about that. I, I definitely think Drive is like a combination of this movie and 
The Driver, starring Ryan O'Neill. Yes. Yeah. Basically those two. Follow the show on Twitter, at Pod, and make sure you're subscribed to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Never miss an episode. Please spread the word, the greatest moments word, to your friends, family, anyone who might be interested in <laughs> yeah. a movie podcast. If you would like a free sticker, reach out to us at Greatest Pod on Twitter. And if you do not have Twitter, mm-hmm. I just created our official email. I think we flirted with one back in the day. If yeah. we mention an email address in the first 20 episodes, please disregard. <laughs> don't know the credentials for it. Yeah, I don't even know what it was. Big news, though. Back is, on the board with an email. This is for people who don't have Twitter or don't want to use Twitter. Maybe they're against elon musk or maybe they've never gotten into that world and they're not on letterbox then please email us greatestpod at gmail.com greatestpod at gmail.com we can work out anything to do with stickers listener requests anything else you may want to write to us about and if people send us interesting fun emails questions just general praise we may read emails on the show one day yeah so feel free a new segment maybe We'll see. I doubt it'll happen very often, but yeah. if we ever get a noteworthy email, maybe we would read that on the podcast. I will say, podcast. Lindsay is over me reading the reviews to her, so we need to get that out in a different way now for me. <laughs> <laughs> and this is for that person that reached out and was like, what does one do if they don't have Twitter, don't have Letterbox? You stumped us, but we solved it finally. We got over the hump. It's just another way to reach out and connect. Yep. With people. So, yes, listener requests $50 for a movie up to two hours and 10 minutes, 75 for up to three hours. Anything beyond that, we would negotiate with you via DMs on Twitter or email. And we have a cash app in the whole situation there. But please feel free to to give us other money besides for listener requests. Any kind of donation <laughs> would be great. Yeah. If you want. No pressure. No, no. And. You can find us on the aforementioned letterbox, Zach1983 and Matt Crosby on there. So let's get into Thief. We'll go over all of that stuff again at the end anyway, if you mm-hmm. are panicking about the email. Although I, I guess you can always rewind on a podcast. It's not live. That is true. <laughs> Imagine we were Although- broadcasting live on the radio. <laughs> yeah. Very frustrating, though, to go back and find the space. Yeah. And that's what I love about these Criterion discs. You shut the thing off, turn it back on, resume play. Yeah. I don't know why all discs don't do that. I'm always annoyed whenever we are doing a movie that doesn't remember where you are. I know. Because I like to break it up for the notes. Otherwise, it's like an eight-hour ordeal to get through this. Although I did do Thief in only a couple of chunks, and they were all in one day. So it depends. Sometimes I break it up over a week. If it's a long one. Well, it's one of those movies where not too much happens. Thankfully. Yeah. It's <laughs> we nice. We needed that. It's refreshing. <laughs> this is sort of oddly similar in some ways to Paris, Texas. I do think that yeah. it has much more of a story than Paris, Texas, which is... It has a story, but that, that is like very much the aesthetics and the vibe. And Definitely. this one also is too, but there's also a story. Thief... For those of you who don't know, came out in 1981. It was written and directed by Michael Mann based on the 1975 novel The Home Invaders, Confessions of a Cat Burglar by Frank Homer, who was a real-life thief. 
And so, yes, it was a novel, but I think a lot of it was based on his real life. He was serving time in prison while this film was in production. The budget for Thief was $5.5 million. The eventual box office was $11.5 million, although I don't think it necessarily blew the doors off the world when it was initially released. And if you haven't seen it, you can stream it for free on Tubi, the always reliable Tubi. I'm always going to put that over on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. It has a wide variety. A wide variety, random shit. It's free. Yes, it has commercials, but so what? Yep. Roku Channel, Pluto TV, and Freevee. I think all of those probably have commercials, so if you don't own the Criterion Collection... Which you should. ...Blu-ray, then you're probably going to watch it with commercials, unless you want to rent it, which is also always on the table. What can even be said? Thief is... Pure craftsmanship, the perfect blend of the 70s American crime films Mm -hmm. and the neo-noir style of the 1980s. It's a lot of neon and tangerine dream, plus gritty Chicago workmen-like criminals navigating a rat maze of rain-soaked streets. It all equals something completely original, all its own. In many ways... Thief acts as a precursor to Michael Mann's 1995 film Heat, Mm -hmm. and it's certainly a huge influence on countless other films, Drive, for example. Those movies that are right around the turn of the decades and where you can see the culture shifts happening, the things carry over from the previous, and then the introduction of the new, this is one of the great examples of that, definitely has very much a 70s feel with the elements of the 80s starting to bleed in. Yeah, I'm not sure if this exact aesthetic has ever been replicated. Thief, at times, feels just as close to Blade Runner as it does to Martin Scorsese. That's unique. That's one of a kind. Because there's nothing remotely science fiction or Mm -hmm. fantasy about the film, and yet it has that same dreary, rainy night. Yeah neonish world with synthesizer music yes the vangelis score from blade runner is sort of similar to the tangerine dream score from this film michael mann's feature film debut is thief he previously had done a tv movie a pretty famous and well-known one the jericho mile in 1979 which involved him working a lot in Folsom prison that all was a big part of the Jericho Mile, which ends up being a huge influence on Thief and then Mann's career as a filmmaker in general. I I think that his time spent with prisoners and listening to prisoners and hearing their stories ends up shaping Hmm. his whole career in a lot of ways. It probably informed my ability to imagine what Frank's life was like, Mann says, where he was from and what those 12 or 13 years in prison were like for him. The idea of creating his character was to have somebody who has been outside of society, an outsider who has been removed from the evolution of everything from technology to the music that people listen to, to how you talk to a girl, to what do you do with your life and how do you go about getting it. Everything that's normal development that we experience, he was excluded from by design. In the design of the character and the engineering of the character, that was the idea. And then the film itself, I think, works as a harbinger of style 
as you said, Manhunter, but also Miami Vice, mm-hmm. I think that when people have a specific idea of a certain type of film from the 1980s, Michael Mann is probably the biggest part of that and influence on it and a certain type of crime story. Definitely. Which yeah, ends up being one of his projects is the TV show Crime Story. Uh-huh. But yes, his use of cinematography, light and shadow, everything is apparent here on display in Thief, which much like a Paris, Texas or some of these other films we've talked about is one of the better looking films I've ever seen. There's so much attention to detail, to light, to how things reflect, to the use of shadows and water on the streets and the rain. It's all a very specific, cultivated look that I think is what leaves the biggest impression on me from the story. Uh Before you even get into the great performance from James Caan at the center of the film. Right. Originally titled Violent Streets, the film debuted at the 34th Cannes Film Festival in May of 1981. It was not really a hit upon initial release, but has become an essential cult classic and a reference point in man's career, especially with the release of Heat in 1995, renewing interest due to the various similarities. There's some stuff in Heat that comes straight from this film. It's not the same story doesn't have the same huge set pieces of heat or anything like that but some of the specifics the details the de niro character i would say there's definitely some crossover with this guy yeah for sure i found this to be particularly hilarious the film was nominated for a razzie award for worst musical score people just weren't getting it yet they weren't ready i do think that that was what it was because the Tangerine Dream score does seem so different from what people were used to for this type of movie. Yeah. And you have to remember, in 1981, it's not like all of this electronic music had permeated the culture yet. It was still pretty new. It was a very new, wavy synth thing coming up on the fringes and gaining more and more popularity. But to put it with this material felt very weird, I think. Mm-hmm. But it just goes to show you how absurd things like the Razzies are in general. We always bitch about the Oscars, but the Razzies are even more stupid, really. (laughs) Just a complete waste of time. Yeah. Attention whores. (laughs) Pathetic. The most they ever add is a little bit of humor to something, but there's not much use for them. It didn't deter Man from utilizing Tangerine Dream for his next film, The Keep, in 1983. Mann stated that he was always a jazz and blues fan and wanted to use that style of music for the film, but he made a director's decision to use Tangerine Dream to showcase the style and themes of the film better than blues might have. He utilizes jazz and blues in one scene where Frank raises to meet Jesse after the offer from Leo, transitioning from the meetup all the way to the jazz club. And there's a little bit of a a shift at the very end of the film, which Mm -hmm. we'll talk about when we get there. But I do think that the Tangerine Dream works when you think about it because there is a little bit more of a coldness and a calculated feel to that electronic style of music. And I think that the big thing with Thief is the emphasis on the details, the emphasis on the nuances of not only the characters, but what they do. Everything is very real. Everything is very controlled. 
it's not exactly shown to us in real time because that would be crazy and no movie could be that long. But when they do crack these safes, when they do these jobs, it feels very real because a lot of it is. Yeah, it's explored in a way that I had never seen before seeing this movie. You're so used to cracking a safe being done a certain way. Yes. And the way that they do it, especially for the second job, is so unique. Right, and everything they do is essentially by the book, if there was a book for how to do these things. They have all kinds of real thieves, professional thieves, as technical advisors on the film. They use real tools. There's no fake props. Everything is exactly how it would be. And that comes across, and you just have all the right elements. You have Mm -hmm. the guy who's this grizzled vet who is the best. He's the best at his job. He's great at his job. He knows what to do. And he's on this one last job, one last job to freedom, which the big of course dirty. is the big yeah. motivator in a lot of these films. And then you have most of the action taking place in Chicago, which is man's hometown, his backyard. So there's a certain familiarity. There's a comfort in the intimacy. He knows the right locations, the right look, the right places, the right everything to make this feel very authentic. Chicago is just the right town for this type of movie. Yeah. You could just as easily tell this story in another city, especially New York or something, but I think it gets lost in the shuffle a little bit more. It feels a little bit more specific when you take it out of New York City and put it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. The opening sequence, A Robbery at Night, is as gorgeous as filmmaking gets. The perpetual rain... Mm -hmm. involved they actually had a 60,000 gallon water truck utilized in order to keep the streets wet when Chicago's weather wasn't quite in sync with man's vision the lights at night the slow pan down the tangled maze of fire escapes in rat alley as it's called okay sounds like a nice place to hang out there's always a green mist with that very specific icy blue. Those are like the two oh, yeah. major colors at work in Thief. But yes, this pan down those fire escapes. Yeah, I get chills. It's so incredible looking. I know this is sort of pretentious and fucking bullshit, but at the same time, I can't help but watch this movie now in 2023 on Blu-ray and think, man, I bet most of the audience in the theaters in 81 was not appreciating what they were even seeing with this. And they were just going straight by, is the story good or not? Which is fine. And I don't judge people who want to look at it that way. And the story is good, but they aren't soaking in all of the technical work going on to make this look as cool as it looks. Mm -hmm. It's really art. Definitely. (laughs) I don't know how else to say it in any way that sounds cooler than just to say it's art. No, I know. The aesthetic value of it, you're just clicking with it, firing on all cylinders right from the get-go. What we're seeing is our world, and yet, like Vim Vendor's Paris, Texas, it looks so much better than our world somehow. yeah. (laughs) There's nothing in this movie that you're looking at and thinking, this doesn't look like our world, and yet... It doesn't. (laughs) When you're actually processing it as you're living it, you're not... Noticing it all the in. detail. You're right. not seeing it this way. And much like Winding Refn's Drive, for example, the opening sequence is about proficiency and efficiency. 
the excitement comes from being professional and excelling at the work, which also happens to be illegal, which adds another thrill to it all. We have James Caan as Frank, Jim Belushi as Barry. They're working together on this score to open the film. They've got the police scanners going in the car. Yep. I love seeing the big boxy cars of right, the era. Same. Everything looks very specific and cool to that time period. I love seeing James Conn's shoulders. You're just like, how does one even... How do you even walk through a door? <laughs> <laughs> and the vault that Frank breaks into in this opening scene was a real vault purchased for $10,000, specifically so that James Conn could break into it using the real tools and techniques supplied by John Santucci, which is a name we're going to come across a few times. John Santucci appears in the film as Sergeant Urizzi. A lot of cops and robbers served as technical advisors on the film, but in sort of a humorous twist, they're often portraying the opposite of who they were in real life, including Dennis Farina, who was a Chicago cop, but mm-hmm. he plays a bad guy in the film and all these different switches and stuff like that. And Santucci was a little bit of the basis for Frank in some ways. Now, I know that they were basing it off of a book from another guy, but just sort of the model of the character they were going yeah, for a little molding bit. molding ideas together. The burglary tools used throughout the film, such as the magnetic drill used here in the opening sequence, were not props, but real tools which the actors were trained to use. The tools were supplied by these real-life thieves who were serving as consultants on the film principally Santucci, who we just mentioned. And there were no false props used at all. And this is, again, something that we'll probably mention more than once, which is that for man, it was about the actors knowing the difference, the actors knowing when they talk and when they use them, even whenever they're building that very specific tool for the big job later in the film, It doesn't matter if the audience doesn't really know what they're talking about, but if the actors know and the actors seem like they know, then that's enough to convey what's happening. And that's definitely how I've always processed this film before breaking it down for notes for a podcast. You just sort of have these things happen and you roll with it because everyone seems like they know what they're doing. Uh, Yeah. Well, James (laughs) Conn definitely brings a certain confidence to everything he does. The score, to me is awesome. It's Mm -hmm. one of those ones that's not really in circulation. Like You can't listen to this particular score on Spotify. You have to go to YouTube and stuff. I don't really know why because a lot of Tangerine Dream's other works, even for films we've done on the podcast, you can just listen to them on Spotify or wherever, but for some reason, Thief is harder to track down. But I, I think it works incredibly well. I think with blues music, it's bringing a little bit more emotion which for some people is is perhaps what they would want out of a film or out of a character or out of something like this, but I don't think that's what the vision was for Frank or for this particular story, and that's why I think that the electronic, calculated, cold music works so much better. Definitely. And then you have that transition during the climactic moments of the film. Mm -hmm. It starts picking up. And to go along with that deliberate specific calculated feeling Khan made sure to speak slowly and clearly and tried to avoid using contractions in his words he decided that Frank would do this so that he would save time by never having to repeat himself and if you notice he says I am a lot 
Okay. I wasn't or it would be better to say I'm. Yeah. I am late, he says. Gotcha. Instead of I'm late. Now, I do think a couple of contractions slip in there if you watch the film with the subtitles on, but he definitely avoids it where a lot of people would naturally use the contractions. Yeah, the slow pace of his delivery kind of adds to his overall brooding presence. Some of the other people in the mix, I think at one point Michael Mann was interested in Jeff Bridges, but he was deemed to be too young at the time. Al Pacino, who Mann would later work with, he was unavailable. Gene Hackman and Roy Scheider, also names that were circulating. I could definitely see either of those last two for sure. But it's kind of the story of James Kahn's career. He had a really nice run in the 70s, but then because of some personal problems, personal issues, and and different things, disappears for a lot of the 80s. He's not really in a lot of stuff. And then the 90s becomes really, after misery, it becomes right a, a very hit or miss, a lot of crap, especially once you get into the 2000s and stuff. His career never really lived up to the potential, and even some of his most famous stuff, like Misery, he's not the first choice. He was like the seventh or eighth choice or whatever to be in that film, and he's not really the first choice for this film, and yet anytime they land on him for this stuff... He brings it. Yeah, you think, why didn't he end up in more things? I think he was a little hard to work with sometimes because he was so passionate and determined to do it his way. And I know there's one famous story where he just walked off of some movie. I don't even know what that was. But, you know, (laughs) that was sort of his rep. Mm -hmm. He seems like there would be a little bit of a temper. Maybe that's just because I know his on-screen persona. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Yeah, okay. I think that's fair. (laughs) Frank is a jewel thief and an ex-convict who has a set structure to his life. He also has a couple of successful businesses in Chicago, a bar and a car dealership that he is able to utilize as fronts for his criminal enterprise. The final piece of the puzzle for Frank is Jesse, played by Tuesday Weld, a cashier at a diner. He has recently started dating He wants a family and presumably stability and normality. I think they actually restructured the first conversation between Frank and Jesse to the point where it makes the audience feel like they've already been seeing each Uh other and know each other. But originally it kind of felt like they had just met for the first time. It is weird because it's not something you usually do in movies like this. It seems like it's someone catching his eye and then he's approaching her to like ask her on the first date. But when they talk to each other, it seems like they've already been talking to each other. So it's it's hard to tell exactly what they're going for. And it is interesting the way that she's introduced in the movie and the role and what she means to him. Because they also throw in the fact that he's coming out of a marriage, (laughs) you know? Yeah, which we never really know that much about. Later on, when we get the details of his time in prison, it seems like it was a huge chunk of his life Uh and... Everything after the fact has been impacted by this, but he's been able to build himself up to the point where he's got these front businesses. And I think one of the questions at the heart of Thief becomes, how is owning a car dealership and a bar like not enough? I know. (laughs) It seems like that's enough for his plan. His plans aren't that grand where he would need so much more money. It does seem like there'd be decent revenue streams from those the movie was hitting me on a whole different level this time around. 
the whole prisons of society thing and like corporate America because he's kind of going around as this free man until he gets tied up in this Leo shit. And then there's all these other things hanging over his head. Yeah, I do think that a big part of the film becomes about freedom and what it means and the deals we make and the yeah. situations we get into and what it means to have dreams. <laughs> right. And how they sort of evaporate once you get stuck in these situations. So this is the first time that we've got to talk about one of our favorites, Tuesday Weld. Definitely. Although, oddly enough, I think the origin of our favoritism is probably just her appearance on the cover of the Matthew Sweet album, Girlfriend. Where you're Somewhere just I've got a framed record of that. Looking at yeah. this picture and you're like, this is the most beautiful person I've ever seen. She was a child star, I guess, in the 50s and then had a career that went through the 60s and 70s and 80s. I don't know that she's super well known. As I've said to you, I think part of the problem with why she's not more well known is that I think some of her most standout stuff, it happens to be in films that are just not available now for various rights issues. Uh, They're hard to track down. That, and really has Matthew Sweet's music lived on? (laughs) Well, (laughs) I don't know that that's really, that's just how our intro, that was like a gateway. I don't know if that's what she should be basing her career on. But yeah, she was in Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which is a Diane Keaton movie. She was nominated for an Oscar for supporting actress. But that movie is just like not available, right? Right. Well, that was yeah. my point. And then played as it lays, which is based on the Joan Didion book, which is also not readily available. I think at some point, hopefully those movies will be rescued and restored. She's in a lot of other stuff though. Falling down the Michael mm-hmm. Douglas movie, once upon a time in America. And then a couple of movies we're going to, talk about during the recommendation segment but we've always been big fans definitely she's definitely got a distinct look and there's something more we'll get into later in the during the famous diner scene too and i think that it's important to pick up on because at 39 which is how old i am believe Uh it or not folks (laughs) cue shocking music i'm almost as old as james Kahn is in this movie and i'm older than tuesday weld is in this movie and yet they both look and seem older than me, and there's, I think, a very specific reason for that, and I think that that works for the characters. Yeah. Because th- at a certain point, this feels like last chance saloon uh-huh. for these two for various reasons in their lives. Yeah, it seems like they've carried a lot through their prior years. There's a weight to it. And so this puzzle that I'm referring to, Jesse being the last piece of this this comes from Frank's time in prison and what he fantasizes about what life could be except if you go with that quote from man at the beginning that I read he's not equipped to really know how the world works so his puzzle is always sort of not that authentic or natural it's something that he's put together and that's why it never comes easy for him even Mm -hmm. when he's courting Jesse in that very direct way that comes up later where he's like okay Enough of the fucking bullshit. <laughs> Let's just get on with the romance. Yeah. It seems weird, but it's because he doesn't really know how to do things in a normal way. He just wants the end result. How much would you love to just have this approach, though? <laughs> well, it takes a certain amount of confidence. Yeah. Moxie. Well, at the same time, he's also have. like, I wear $800 suits. I got a one-of-a-kind diamond. He's like fucking Ric Flair <laughs> like in like a promo. off the carrots of his ring. <laughs> Which he does multiple times. 
After the big diamond score that opened the film, Frank gives those diamonds to his fence, Joe Gags. Cool name. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> However, before Frank can collect his share, Gags is murdered for skimming from the mob's collection money. Just like thrown from his building or something, right? Yeah. A lot of these details are mentioned by Barry. Barry, who was more or less acting as Frank's proxy for the pickup, discovers that a plating company executive that Gags was working for, Ataglia, is responsible for Gags's murder and stealing Frank's payoff. Barry takes Frank to the plating company where Frank demands his money back. Mr. Taglia, you really get a delivery of something? Sit down. Zinc, what? My name is Frank. And that was bullshit. What is it? This is Joe Gags. 185000 of my money. We have this problem. What problem? What are you talking about? He was moving my merchandise. So the money in his pocket when he went out the window is my money. This is a plating company. What are you telling me to shit? Shit? I want my money. Hey. I don't know what you're talking about, Mr. Frank, uh, Lala, whatever. Some guy died? Yes. Your state goes to probate. Take it to probate court. What do you bug me with this? I come here to discuss a piece of business with you. And what are you going to do? You're going to tell me fairy tales? Hey, who the fuck are you, Slick? Somebody knows you? What are you, crazy or what? I don't know you. I don't know some clown named Gags. Go ahead, go see what you got to do. Get out of here. Carl, go ahead, get the fuck out of here. Hold it. All right, all right. Jesus Christ, hold it. All right, do what he says. Do what he says. Lay down. Go ahead. Put your hands on your head. Spread your legs, now. Hey, you, you goof, look at the wall. I am the last guy in the world that you want to fuck with. You found my money on gags. Let us pretend that you don't know whose money it is. That's right, for Christ's sakes. I don't know who you are. Three hours. I will call to set a meet. You will pay me my money, $185,000. He walks right in. That's the thing. A lot of these gangsters in this movie are underestimating Frank. Even when they know 100%. the backstory of Frank. Right. They're like, oh, you're prison bullshit. Fuck you. Who cares? Whatever. They don't really underestimate how little he feels like he has to lose, even when he does have shit to lose. Right. <laughs> He's like, fuck it. I'll burn it all down. <laughs> they never seem to get onto that level with him. Yeah. <laughs> but we get a brief shot here of Dennis Farina as Carl. He's one of the goons. At this point, he's hanging around the plating company. He works for this little criminal operation going on that's not really that easy to piece together, but it doesn't really matter. They're just guys. It kind of looks like Saul Goodman's office once they get into that back room. A little bit, yeah. Thief is the first film appearance for several notable actors. We have Dennis Farina who was working as a Chicago police officer at the time. He ends up reappearing in some other Michael Mann material, including Manhunter. That's right. 
Crime Story, the TV show, Miami Vice, he was in some episodes, and then the ill-fated Luck television program on HBO. So all the way up until towards the end of Dennis Farina's life, he was still working with Not to mention an appearance in the oft-overlooked Out of Sight. That nobody cares about, apparently. Yeah. Based on well, our download. I was listing Michael Mann stuff. But yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> we just did Out of Sight, which was, for some reason, one of our lower downloaded titles. Infuriatingly <laughs> so. We don't know why. <laughs> In addition to Farina, William Peterson shows up oh, for about five seconds wow. as a bouncer. I did not catch that. He's that guy that comes up to him when he's yelling at Jesse at mm, the bar when right, he's okay. late. Yeah, yeah. William Peterson, of course appears in so many things that we've done or whatever, but also Manhunter with Michael Mann. Definitely. James Belushi. This is his first film as well. His brother John came to the set often, and they would party at John's club in Chicago. A lot of the cast would hang out there. John died in 1982, so this was right towards the end. Robert Prosky, who we have yet to meet as Leo. Prosky would go on to have a huge career as a character actor, but this is his first film and he was already in his fifties. Wow. Looks older than that even. Well, that's a theme yeah. for movies like this. <laughs> Everybody seems older than they right. were. Prosky would appear in Christine, The Natural, Broadcast News, Mrs. Doubtfire, tons and tons wow. and tons of movies. But this was the start. Frank goes to see his friend Okla, played by Willie Nelson, who is still locked up in prison. Okla is a father figure to Frank, someone he turns to for life advice, although in real life, Willie Nelson was only seven years older than James Mm. Caan, but again, like everyone, (laughs) Willie Nelson does seem old in this movie, and he's still alive now, Right, and this movie is 40-something years old. Okla's only got 10 months left on his sentence, but he tells Frank he's sick, and doesn't think he'll make 10 months, but he doesn't want to die in prison. Yep. That's a whole thing. That's part of it. Part of what? You can't die in there. Yeah. Well, I do think that the character of Okla is interesting, and it doesn't really become clear as to why he's essential to the story until you're introduced to Leo, and then some of the shit that Leo keeps saying. But we'll get into that more Mm -hmm. towards the end of the film. Frank's encounter with Ataglia, where he threatens him and demands his money back, leads to a meeting with Ataglia's employer, the aforementioned Leo, played by Prosky, a high-level fence and Chicago outfit boss. Unknown to Frank, Leo has been receiving Frank's goods from gags for some time. Leo admires Frank's eye for quality stolen goods and professionalism, and he wants Frank working directly for him. Leo is offering Frank big-time profits, Unbeknownst to all involved, their little meeting is monitored from a distance by police surveillance. Mm -hmm. The police portion of this film ends up being not what you would think at all. Right. (laughs) It's not exactly heat. They're not interested in really busting anyone. They just went in on it. (laughs) And they're so annoyed that they won't be cut in. Yeah. (laughs) You want to put down contract scores all over the country? Working directly for me? I am self-employed. I am doing fine. I don't deal with egos. I am Joe the boss of my own body. So what the fuck do I have to work for you for? Maybe you don't. I'll lay it out. You can be the judge. You don't look. You don't case. You don't do nothing. We point you to a score. 
when we say it's there, it's there. They're all laid out scores. And they worked up. Alarm system diagrams, blueprints, sometimes a front door key, sometimes the scores are in on it. Everybody's ripping off the insurance company. Yeah, work costs, drops, tools. Whatever you need, you'd see me. I'd be your father. Money, guns, cars, I'd be your father from here on out. That's my end. You get a price. No negotiation about the price. We got expenses here you don't have, but you'll know the price up front. How big? Boxcar. Nothing under six figures. I'll make you a millionaire in four months. I go to work for you, I'm pulling a lot of exposure. Our protection trades that off. Yeah, take a bust. Turn around, there's gonna be a lawyer, bondsman right there. You never spend a night in jail. Look, Icy Lice. No furs, no coin collections, no stock certificates, no cottage, no treasury bonds, no nothing. Just diamonds or cash. Fine. No cowboy shit, no home right. invasions. I work with a partner. We take care of you. A partner is strictly your responsibility. He beefs on you, that's your problem. He beefs on us, that's your problem too. Well, you're inside people. That's my end, you don't have to know anything about that. So what do you say, Frank? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I don't know. I don't believe in uh, lifetime subscriptions. Maybe you don't fit in with my retirement program. What are you gonna do, retire? Pick corn with the chickens, watch daytime TV for the rest of my life. What the hell's the difference? All right, all right. Two, three moves. You wanna keep going, that's fine. Well, if you wanna split, that's fine too. Everybody's business-like. Everybody's an adult. So let me know, because we'd be terrific. Yeah, that's fine. I'll call you. It all sounds great, but Frank knows the deal. He's reluctant for a variety of reasons. How he has it now, it's simple. As he calls himself, he's Joe, the boss of his own body. He doesn't want to answer to anyone. He doesn't mm -hmm. want any of these connections. He doesn't want to have any of this hanging over him. He pretty much knows exactly how it's going to go. And he's right. Yeah. Well, you can't trust these people. Yeah, yeah. Once you're... But he's definitely getting the pitch, the recruitment from Leo. You know yes. what I mean? And when we eventually see Leo reveal the darker side, it's a stark switch from the Leo we know now. This meeting with Leo where... He is given his money, the money that was yeah. on Joe Gags. He is given that money. This meeting causes Frank to be two hours late for his date with Jesse. She's no longer at the diner where she works. He has to retrieve her from a bar. I guess maybe it's the bar he owns, but I don't think so. The way that he had to deal with that bouncer, which mm -hmm. was William Peterson. Right. It's a big scene. He's making a big scene because it's basically a public abduction. <laughs> Yeah. She's not willing to go, and yet he's dragging her out of the bar and throwing her in his car. Right. He causes a car accident when he pulls off of the curb. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, God, tag yourself in this movie. Me? Matt, you'd be the guy driving into another car. <laughs> Just like, what the fuck? <laughs> Somehow I'm arrested. Killed? Yeah. <laughs> you ran into Leo's car? Yeah. Just shot? <laughs> <laughs> this is really a huge part of the movie, because to this point, I would say that Thief is like 90% style and aesthetic and soundtrack and score and vibe and mood and it looks great and it's awesome and Chicago looks cool at night, but you don't really give a shit about these characters yet. And now you get this twofer, this back-to-back. -back. First, you have the car argument between mm -hmm. Frank and Jesse that then leads into the big diner scene. Look, in what I do, there are sometimes pressures. What the hell do you think that I do? 
Come on, come on. Come on, every morning I walk in for five months, say hi. What the hell do you think that I do? You sell little fucking cars, that's what you do. I wear $150 slacks, I wear silk shirts, I wear $800 suits, I wear a gold watch, I wear a perfect D flawless three carat ring. I change cars like other guys change their fucking shoes. I'm a thief. I've been in prison, all right? So what? I don't care. So what? Don't tell me. So what? I never even told my wife that. I don't Who care. Who is now gone? Did I ever come on to you? No. What'd you see? See? See what? See? I, I am a straight arrow. I am a true blue kind of a guy. I've been cool. I am now unmarried. So let's cut the mini moves and the bullshit and get on with this big romance. What? I don't believe it. Do you think that I have been waiting for you to come along? What is this shit? You think I'm kidding? I can tell. This is strictly on the up and up. Jesus Christ. So in the car, he says, fuck it. Who, who do you think I am? And she's like, I don't know. You own a car dealership or whatever? He launches into that whole fucking wrestling promo like he's... In the Four Horsemen from 1988. He's like, I have a fucking $800 pair of shoes. I change cars like other people change shirts. Yeah. <laughs> I got a $10 million ring or whatever. He's like, okay. <laughs> like, what the fuck? But he's yeah. like, I'm a thief. I'm a th-. He's like, I've been in jail. Little do we know I, that fucking Jesse has a weird right. fucking past where she can oh. be cool enough to roll with She's this. got a type. You come to find out. Yeah. But... I do think it's believable that he's somewhat well-to-do owning a car dealership and a bar. I don't know about the $10 million ring or whatever. Well, I don't think it was $10 yeah. million. But yeah, his lifestyle was a little bit higher up than probably what it should be. Yeah, yeah. Because you can get away with the fronts. But she's a waitress. <laughs> I mean... This feels like a Seinfeld bit. Yeah. <laughs> but you're a cashier. Yeah. <laughs> He wants to come clean. I know. He always has a sort of an abrasive way, and he's, I guess, a little bit unsure of how she's going to react, and so he just starts shouting this stuff out. Like, it's her fault for not knowing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, don't you get it, Once lady? Once you figure out her whole background, too. In movies, I noticed this more and more. Did no one grow up in a town and stay in that town their whole... Like, everyone lived in another country at some point? <laughs> the diner scene that follows is the centerpiece of the film where Frank is laying it all on the line. As I said, Khan mm-hmm. at this point is about 40, 41 weld 37, 38, something like that. This is a literal Bruce Springsteen song, <laughs> maybe thunder road. You know, they're scared that they're not that young anymore. We got one last chance to right. make it real. This is all applying <laughs> yeah. to their lives. They've been around the block a time or two. They seem older than they even are. The movie itself becomes about one last job, at least in Frank's mind. But this vibe for this scene is more like one last chance for a future, for a family, for something to build on. Mm-hmm. Khan said that his monologue in the diner scene was the scene of which he was the most proud of in his career. Some of the prison stuff that he talks about is based on a letter that Michael Mann received from a real inmate because he made a lot of those connections when working on the Jericho Mile and doing all that stuff. 
which bleeds directly into thief and heat and all these crime things. He shows Jesse his little dream board photo, which mm-hmm. is bizarre, yes, to it say is. the least. Because it even has some collage that he made. It. Yeah. <laughs> He's like life and death. It's like a cycle. And she's it, like, what? It does sort of feel like when he pulls this thing out of his wallet and like unfolds it and shows it to her that she's just going to be like, check. <laughs> oh, my God. Why do you have a picture of Willie Nelson yeah. in your wallet? It, it looks like a picture directly from the cover of one of Willie Nelson's albums right. or something. <laughs> I think this was the best choice for the opening clip, though, for this episode, even though it is basically like a 10-minute long thing. But it's so well acted and well directed and well done that you don't even realize that it's like 10 minutes long. I'm going to tell you all these thoughts about life, but I think what best articulates it is this collage that I made that I keep in my (laughs) wallet at all times. Even this location is cool, though. It's, is it over the interstate or something? It reminds me of that place in Inside Lewin Davis. Yeah, it yeah. might even be like the same type of thing. Right. Is that something they just do in Chicago? I don't there know. is a bunch of overpass things because the highway system is like so long and intense through Chicago. Yeah, it's one of those type deals. But yeah, it's actually kind of similar to Paris, Texas, when they're like walking to find the table. That famous shot in Paris, Texas, where he's like walking over the interstate. It's kind of like a rolling camera situation. This is the heart of not only the film, but the character. This is the invitation, is the word I'm looking for, where you're being pulled into his life. And Mm -hmm. the story that he's telling is not great. It's got (laughs) Andy Dufresne and Shawshank Redemption type feel to it. Where you're like, okay, there was some dark times. Something bad was going to happen. Right. He ends up murdering a man in prison, which adds on to his time. He catches a manslaughter beef, as he puts it. So he was only supposed to go to jail for like six months. Ugh. Next thing you know, 11 years has gone by. And his life is fucked. And this, coupled with the big adoption agency meltdown, is like where you just get those brief little windows into who this guy is and mm-hmm. why he is the way he is. There's nobody better than James Caan at playing a badass dude who could punch you in the face with tears in his eyes. Definitely. You know, where yeah, he's about to fucking lose it, it right. and have a breakdown. He wears his heart on his sleeve in such a very specific way, but he's still got the huge shoulders and he's menacing oh, and yeah. you buy it. And so when he allows you a little bit of that emotional availability... It doesn't come off as any kind of a weakness. It no. Just, in a way, it ends up being scary. It's a burning fire. You're like, oh, God, yeah. I got to get away from this guy before he fucking <laughs> loses it. Before he punches my head off my body. Frank pushes all of his chips onto the table during this late night conversation with Jesse, where he tells her his tale of prison survival via a toughened mental attitude and his plan for a life and a future which on the surface is good. It's sharing, it's open, it's honest. But at the same time, Jesse's reaction to this is sort of scary because he's basically telling her, I learned to not give a fuck about anything and to not even care if I live or die. And she's like, I want to start a future with yeah, you. This you know, sounds what? great. I'm glad this is the night you chose for the pitch. <laughs> you know, I just so happen to be open to this. But then she's yeah. like, look, I looked at your dream board and I saw that you were really into having kids. Here's the thing. She can't have children. And he says, all right, well, then we'll adopt. <laughs> Quickly able to reconfigure the dream board. 
For some reason, she agrees to be a part of his life, which then causes Frank to reconsider Leo's offer. His way of thinking, I guess, is that the bigger money will secure a future faster. Now that he has something to aim towards, might as well go for it. Mm -hmm. Go all in. It does seem like this is a fork in the road where you could have just been like, maybe I'll just squeeze out whatever money I can out of my two businesses that are running right now. I don't know, Matt. Yeah. She's a cashier. (laughs) I don't know if owning a car dealership and a bar is going to be enough for her. I don't know. The details of the front businesses are very confusing. True. Because later in the film, there's like an implication that somehow Leo now owns everything in his life, and Mm -hmm. that's why he has to blow it all up. I I don't know. I never really get some of that stuff. I get that it's all illegal, and there's all kinds of shady shit going on, but that's the one time where the details aren't that clear to me. (laughs) But whatever. Yeah. Part of his strategy with Jesse seems to be negging her a little bit. Definitely. Your life stinks too, so (laughs) why not? What do you got going on that's so great? (laughs) Which is a strategy I've used. (laughs) Maybe not, hey, let's start a big romance, let's cut to the chase, but your life stinks. (laughs) What do you got going? (laughs) And I think Jesse's reaction, even though it's hard to relate to when you're looking at things just coldly objectively whatever i think that human nature and this is not just men approaching a woman or necessarily even to do with romance or or things like that this idea i think that humans crave excitement deep down there is sometimes a fear in certain people of boredom definitely I'm sure a good-looking woman like that has had successful, normal businessmen approach her, and they are just fucking boring. She doesn't want that. Even when we know it's a bad decision, she's thinking, this guy is a thief. Fun. That's hot. (laughs) (laughs) Paris Hilton voice, that's hot. (laughs) So Frank agrees to do just one big score for Leo, telling Barry that it will be his last job. Well, I feel like Leo's always even pushing the notion that, well, two or three jobs. Yeah, I know. know? That's the thing where you have to sort of blame Frank because it's never clear. The details of everything are never clear. Right. But he thinks he can just do what he wants because that's how he's lived his whole life post-prison. But now he is answering to somebody. The score itself is actually in California. It's a custom-made vault that will require new custom-made tools It's actually a thermal lance to literally burn into the vault rather than drill. All of this stuff is real, and it is a way that you can do this. Yeah, this technique was not on my radar at all. It ends up being a vault in a hotel. It's very strange. It's almost out of some other movie or something different. Yeah, This hotel, it's... I don't know. It's a world that you're not even sure exactly what this is and why this vault is there and what the fuck is going on. I don't know. In the scene where Frank goes to Grossman to have the burning bar or thermal lance made, dialogue is delivered regarding copper and titanium being found in the steel door they have to cut through. Copper is a soft metal, titanium is a hard metal, and a special tool that is able to cut through both has to be devised. It's dialogue that not many viewers would understand, but Michael Mann found it imperative that the two actors knew what was being said. As long as they were convincing in what was being said, the audience didn't need to understand it. 
It's a great philosophy because it works. Frank and Jesse, in the meantime, get a house together in the suburbs. Seems like things are moving very rapidly. I still thought this was a relatively modest house. The driveway is pretty big, but well, what did you want them to get a mansion? No, it's, I don't know. He's, he's like, oh, a millionaire lives here. Is what I think Barry says. Might later. be a nice neighborhood. Yeah, you have to remember it's the style and everything is forty years ago. Definitely it might have been like cool looking at the time. Yeah, Barry. Let's be honest, you know. <laughs> Not exactly. He's a... living above a grocery store, probably. Right. <laughs> Finger not on the pulse of style and flair. A hearing is arranged for Okla to receive early release, which Frank has put together with a lawyer. Mm-hmm. If this was on the table, <laughs> and I guess a lot of the factors end up playing in, you know, his health situation, the fact that most of the bid is done, but... <laughs> what were we waiting for? Yeah, if, if this was an option, well, like you could have gotten Okla. There's a earlier. certain price at play. Yeah. When attorney Garner asked the judge to release Okla, the judge rested eight fingers on his face, yeah. implying he wants eight thousand dollars as a bribe. Uh-huh. And then the attorney puts four fingers on his face, indicating a four thousand dollar counteroffer. Then the judge goes for six. He puts six fingers on his face, which is actually like. A little too obvious, because no one does that. I know. Puts three fingers on both their cheeks, basically. Garner agreed by then matching it by putting six fingers on his face. And then in the hallway outside the court, he tells Frank, I need 6000 for Earl Warren, sarcastically referring to the court judge as the Chief Justice of the United States. Hmm. So I guess... Okla maybe had a little bit of pride, too. He doesn't want to just ask his friend to pay $6,000 sure. to get him out of jail, but... I got to tell you, though, it does seem... Wait, you have two businesses out here and I've been in jail? (laughs) Well, this time, though, he did have an actual doctor diagnose him with the angina thing. And so, yeah, I mean... There's a little bit more. And he had been in the jail since the 50s or something? Wasn't that what they said? I don't know. Holy fuck. Right. What a life. I see on your application here... By the way, you misspelled mail. It's M-A-L-E. The others will be put in post boxes. I see you put under employer 1959 to 1976, Joliet State Penitentiary. Yes. You work for the state, I take it? After a fashion. Uh, What did you do with the prison? Desks. I, uh, I spot welded desks, and then I got promoted to shoes. You were in charge of the shop? Lady, I was a convict. I was doing time. You were what? Frank, let's go. Um, you have to understand, we have more applicants than children. Then why do you still have kids here? As a kid, I would not be falling all over myself to stay in one of these places. I mean, we will relieve you of some of the burden. The point is, we establish criteria for parenting and an ex-convict compared to other desirable. Wait, so we'll take a kid that's not so desirable. You got a black kid? We'll take a black kid. You got a chink kid? You don't seem to understand. No one likes older kids. You got an eight-year-old black chink kid? We'll take him. Frank. Wait, if it's a matter of, uh, you know, here. What is that? What is that? That is the flawless 3.2 carats emerald cut. This is not a marketplace. Right. You know, you're not smart enough to take this any more than you are to, to, to recognize good parents. Get out of my office. You did not ask about us. You didn't ask what kind of people we are. 
there is a child waiting, and you are denying us him and him us. Who the hell are you? Don't make a scene. Our criteria. Your criteria? Your criteria are so far up your ass they can't see daylight. This is bullshit. It's not happening. Let's go. Look, I got some ABC-type information for you, lady. I was state-raised, and this is a dead place. A child in eight-by-four green walls. After a while, you tell the walls, my life is yours. Well, did you grow up in the suburbs? Yes. Right, right. What are you looking at? Huh? The scene in the courtroom is followed up by the scene at the adoption agency where Frank and Jesse are rejected in their attempt to adopt a child because of Frank's criminal past. Although I do like when he's just sort of going with the bit about that he worked in the prison. <laughs> Before he's like, you idiot, I was a convict. <laughs> yeah, this is more of that raw nerve mm-hmm. that's right underneath the surface. And very succinct, specific lines of dialogue that tell you so much where he finally just Puts says, I was state raised. Right. And you're like, okay. So he's been dealing with these institutions. Right. His entire life. It's painful. It's embarrassing. It turns into a whole scene where people are staring. and Oh, no. You're reminded of Sonny in The Godfather biting his fist. Like that kind of barely contained rage where you're like, oh, God, is he going to make things so much worse by attacking somebody mm-hmm. in here? He like gets in that security guard's face. <laughs> what are you looking at? That guy just doesn't even know what... He's like a toupee. Yeah, yeah. Like, doesn't even know what to say. (laughs) Just a thankless job. No, really. Not a lot of intense scenes going on in this place very often, so this is kind of like his big moment as a security guard. I don't know. Not cut out The fact that they have a security guard makes me think there are scenes. Maybe, yeah. It's not a pleasant place. (laughs) But ultimately, Frank and Jesse's rejection at the adoption agency leads to getting in deeper with Leo. Because with Leo's help, Frank will be able to acquire a baby boy on the black market, essentially. Mm-hmm. This is the one time in the film where there's a little bit of surprising naivete from Frank, where almost all of the time he's on high alert and he knows everything and he's right and he sees what's happening and he's on top of it and he's an expert in what he does and blah, 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 blah. But in this moment, he doesn't get why that would necessarily maybe not be a great thing to get deeper in with this guy. Yeah. Because he's so blinded by wanting this thing right. with Jesse, this idea he has in his head. God only knows I know, why. and it's like one of the moments where he just really can't contain himself in almost an embarrassing way. The fact that Leo basically is, I'm going to get you this thing, and then he's immediately like mid-conversation, I got to go call Jesse. Yeah. And then that leads to more pain. Right. It does seem like this is just one thing after another, and even when something good happens, like, oh, I'm going to get a baby, then it's like, oh, shit, now Oakla's going to die. Like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's not a great run for a few minutes there. Because before Frank can celebrate getting a child with Jesse, bad news, Oakla's been rushed to the hospital. Dead. And wouldn't you know it, he collapsed right when he was finally being released from prison. Yep. He's not dead because he dies shortly after Frank and Jesse arrive at his bedside. He held on for two things. It was A, to get out, and B, to thank Frank and say goodbye. Frank's like 6,000 bucks. Oof, I could have lit it on fire. But that's the thing. (laughs) Oklahoma was going to live if he hadn't gotten out. 
He was holding on for this thing. I guess. Six thousand dollars compared to the scores that this guy brings in though? Come on. Chump change. That's true. Certainly not envious of the doctor who has to break the news to Frank. <laughs> I would just quit instead of having to do that. <laughs> Frank and Jesse named their son David, which is Okla's actual first name, so he's naming him after his mentor and friend. Frank's also getting harassed by corrupt police detectives looking for a shakedown among them, the aforementioned Urizi. He resists their advances and ditches their surveillance because it's time to finish Leo's big score. There was a lot of prep work that went into this. They had to figure out what the fifth alarm was. They had to do all this extra work, which mostly seemed like Barry was doing it, but okay. I guess... He had to go to that Grossman guy and get that special tool made in that underground hell, wherever that was. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what about that office they went into? It's like, <laughs> what is this place? I know. <laughs> Just out of a nightmare. <laughs> Seriously. Frank and his crew take on the large-scale diamond heist organized by Leo. And this ends up being a significant chunk of time in the film, even though nothing goes wrong, even though there's not a whole lot of drama to it. They essentially do what they do. They Mm want to showcase the skills of these guys. And it's sweet. Yeah. It's exhilarating. They break into the hotel via the roof. They go through the elevator shaft. They go down and they have to burn into this vault. It takes a long time. It looks really cool with all the sparks and everything flying everywhere. I think they take out one smoke alarm, but that would be a concern. Yeah. That smoke is going like beyond the floors, I think, to like other... Well, it was... 1981. I mean, how many smoke detectors? Okay, yeah. <laughs> the bare point, people yeah. were smoking inside. Yeah, true. Probably. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> this is the man brand of authenticity that we would come to know over his films. There's like a certain realism to all of these things, which would carry over into Heat as well. The big jewel robbery right here in this film is based on an actual robbery masterminded by John Santucci, who served. As a technical consultant, and John's wife, Nancy, also plays the diner waitress when Frank and Jesse are at the diner. Santucci would get into acting for a while. He's Eurizzi in this film. And then eventually, sadly, would kind of return back to a life of crime later yeah. in the 90s once the acting dried up. Mm-hmm. And then he's dead now, so whatever. But, you know, <laughs> once a thief, always a thief. Yeah. To me, that's kind of cool. Definitely. Quite a life to... Uh... Start that way, go on to have some acting career, and then back to it. All goes well with the burn job, as it's known, and for a moment, it does seem like everything might just work out okay. Yeah, we get some shots at the beach. Yeah, with Jesse and baby David walking along the beach, along with Barry and his lady friend. A hopeful-sounding uptick in the score. Barry showing off that Matt Crosby-like physique. You wish. (laughs) Free and clear, baby. Life on Easy Street from now on. That's how it seems, because the payoff is supposed to be pretty substantial, and as Frank has told Barry, this is supposed to be the end of the line, at least as far as putting himself out there as a criminal. Frank is expecting the agreed-upon sum of $830,000 for the unmounted stones, uh-huh. which, with a wholesale value of $4 million. Surprise, surprise, though. Mm-hmm. Leo is maybe not on the up and up. No. Hmm. The fee or whatever, like the payoff is so significantly lower. 
You're going from like over three quarters of a million dollars to $70,000. When Frank returns home from the job, Leo gives him less than 100K. This is all that Frank will receive in cash, according to Leo, who says Uh he invested the rest of Frank's cut in shopping centers in Fort Worth, Jacksonville, and Davenport, an idea Frank had previously rejected. Yeah, don't worry. I took care of that for you. You're all set up. (laughs) Great. These are like his stock options. Fucking blouse barn and Michaels and yeah. <laughs> what the fuck else is a Hobby shopping Lobby. center in yeah. Davenport? Like, what? In addition, Leo sets up a Palm Beach score for Frank in six weeks without consulting him. Mm-hmm. Frank tells Leo that their deal is over and takes the cash as he leaves, demanding the rest of his money in 24 hours. Yeah, couldn't be better. I know this is what you're here for, kid. That's it. Mitch, what's to it? Your tan is great. How long are we going to San Diego? Yeah, a few days. You know? Mitch told me all about the score. Said that you were Dr. Wizard. Yeah. Hello, Frank. Where's the rest? Don't worry about it. What is this? This is the cash part. Well, you're light. 830,000 supposed to be here, and I count what? 70, 80, 90. That's because I put you into the Jacksonville, the Fort Worth, and the Davenport shopping centers with the rest. I take care of my people. You can ask these guys. Papers are at your house. It's set up as a limited partnership. A general partner is a subchapter S corporation. You, you got equity with me in that. Well, count me out. <laughs> I thought we had this good thing. Plus. I got a major score in Palm Beach for you in six weeks. You talking to me or somebody else walking in this room? What's that supposed to mean? It means you are dreaming. This is payday. It is over. You know, you, when, when you had trouble with the cops, You pay them off like everybody else because that's the way things are done. But not you, huh? No. They don't run me and you don't run me. I give you houses, I give you a car, you're family. I thought you'd come around. What the hell is this? Where is gratitude? Where is my end? You can't see day for night. I can see my money is still in your pocket which is from the yield of my labor. What gratitude. You're making big profits from my work, my risk, my sweat. But that is okay. Because I elected it to make that deal. But now, the deal is over. I want my end, and I am out. Why don't you join a labor union? I am wearing it. Frank, don't. Do it, Slick. My money in 24 hours, or you will wear your ass for a hat. Maybe not the best idea by Frank. He's not fucking around. No. Except, yeah, he does 
a little bit underestimate how fast Leo's going to strike because yeah. it doesn't seem like any time passes before things take a big turn. Definitely in the context of the movie, they're like beating up Barry in the next scene. Yeah, it seems like he literally drives from Leo's to the yeah. car dealership and they've already beat him there. And I don't know if the guys attacking Barry were doing that anyway. I, it's kind of hard to tell if this was like all part of a setup from the beginning. Like they knew he was going to react like that. Mm. I don't know. And so they were already making this move. But then they would have looked like a horse's ass if he would have been like, oh, cool, another score. Uh, <laughs> like oh, he was just in on it. Oh, cool, like, shopping centers. You know what? I rethought about <laughs> the shopping centers in Jackson. And they you know, I great. really need Barry to be able to do this. Yeah. Thank God I have Barry. Right. <laughs> You're like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. This all looks really cool, though. So once he leaves Leo's house or wherever they are, I don't even know if that's supposed to be Leo's house, but they're in some. I think so. somebody's basement or something. It is Leo's house, because Leo says something about taking a piece into my house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, when Frank's driving, he's got the big black Cadillac, the neon reflecting off of the hood of Frank's Uh car from all the different signage as he's driving along. That looks really fucking cool. And then he shows up at the car dealership, and then this is one of the most famous shots with the string of lights the strings of the lights over the cars in the car dealership they had to have the cars polished just the right way so that those lights would reflect off of them it looks so cool as he's walking through the cars with those lights overhead it's just very unique and cool like it just looks awesome as we said leo wastes little time Frank drives to his car lot, unaware that Leo's henchmen have already beaten and captured Barry and are waiting to ambush him. It's hard to say, but it wouldn't surprise me if we're supposed to take away from it that Leo has already made his move, expecting Frank to buck. Or he had his guys on hand ready to pounce. Just in case. Because I do think that Leo wants Frank on the payroll. Frank has a certain skill. Oh, yeah, he does, yeah. but he, he knows that it, he's going to have to right. break him in. Yeah. <laughs> he's a, like a wild Mustang. He's uh-huh. not going to come easily. Frank is knocked unconscious, and Barry is killed by Carl with a shotgun. <laughs> James Belushi just up against that van, oh, blood blasted. and guts everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we see Dennis Farina as like this badass enforcer for Leo mm-hmm. here. Frank awakens with Leo staring down at him, surrounded by his henchmen. Leo informs him that he, Jesse, and their child and everything he owns are Leo's property. He threatens Frank's family if he does not continue working for him, warning him to focus on his responsibilities. Look. I said fucking look at him. Look at what happened to your friend because you got to go against the way things go down. You treat what I tried to do for you like shit. You don't want to work for me? What's wrong with you? And then you carry a piece in my house. You one of those burned out, demolished wackos in the joint? You're scary because you don't give a fuck. But don't come on to me now with your jailhouse bullshit because you are not that guy. Don't you get it, you prick? 
You've got a home, car, businesses, family, and I own a paper on your whole fucking life. I'll put your cunt wife on the street to be fucked in the ass by niggers and Puerto Ricans. Your kid's mine because I bought it. You got him on loan. He is leased. You are renting him. I'll whack out your whole family. People will be eating them for lunch tomorrow in their wimpy burgers and not know it. You get paid what I say. You do what I say. I run you. There is no discussion. I want you work until you are burned out, you are busted, or you're dead. You'll get it. You got responsibilities. Tighten up and do it. Clean this mess up. Get him out of here. Back to work, Frank. Okay, so as I mentioned earlier, the specifics of this are a little bit confusing, and I'm never really sure what you're supposed to make of it because initially I wouldn't take that literally, but it seems like that that's what they're implying by what happens for the rest of the film and then how Frank responds to all of this. Obviously, Leo's got a certain stranglehold over the situation with what's been going on recently. Mm Mm-hmm as far as the baby and potentially this house and things that have been going on, because now Leo's got his hooks in him a little bit, and he's been paying attention. But as far as the front businesses, I'm not really sure how... I Maybe I'm missing something obvious that I'm not... I don't know. I don't know what exactly Leo did, but maybe he did something behind the scenes? Yeah, it could be. I think once Frank starts being like, I gotta burn it all to the ground, it doesn't matter what Leo's tie is at that point. He's just like, I'm cutting loose all this shit. Yeah, I guess maybe since he does all that stuff first, maybe he's saying, like, in case he kills me, he's not getting anything out of this. Mm -hmm. I guess if there's some truth to him being in on these strip mall deals, if they're really using his name, he is coming back with owning these other businesses, so it's all kind of connected, I guess, at that point. I don't know. Hard to say. When Frank returns home, he disassembles the life he's built as quickly as possible in order to prevent Leo from being able to get at him. He orders an uncomprehending Jesse out of the house, telling her their marriage is over, that she must leave immediately and take David with her, and that he will not be joining up with her at any point. Hmm. She's a little taken aback by this. <laughs> it's so abrupt. Yeah. Maybe I now she's rethinking kid. getting involved with this guy. Yeah. Like, maybe this was where it was... Heading all along, honey. You know what sounds great now? Those boring-ass businessmen that come in and <laughs> hit on me. What about the bus boy who yeah. was 10 years younger than you, who was staring at you all day That's at right. the diner? <laughs> <laughs> what about him? Frank instructs an, an associate to drive her, the baby, and $410,000 in cash somewhere where they cannot be located. This was just that other guy. I, he doesn't even seem to have a name in the movie. Mm-hmm. He was the guy... That was on the jobs with Barry and him. Meanwhile, he doesn't even say to this guy, Barry's gone. (laughs) And the money from the job we just did. Yeah, you're not getting your cut. Right. Although, he is getting a pretty sweet deal to just hang out with Tuesday Weld. True. That may be like what twenty thousand for the first month, twenty five thousand for the second month, thirty thousand for the third month, something like that. We are eating into that four hundred and ten thousand pretty quick. Really? (laughs) Good lord. 
With nothing left to lose, Frank blows up their house using high-explosive charges. He then drives to his bar and car dealership and does the same. Now it's time to finish it once and for all. So, of course, here we go, the big final showdown. The action really kicking up a notch. Armed with a pistol, Frank quietly breaks into Leo's house, which is located in a peaceful suburban neighborhood. I was cracking up a little bit just at Leo and Ataglia having a a bros night chilling in the living room. Reading the newspaper. Leo just reading the newspaper. Ataglia being like, do you want some milk? (laughs) (laughs) What a night they're having. But Frank does quickly give up the upper hand that he has by making, making so much noise. a noisy scene. <laughs> First, Frank pistol whips Ataglia in the kitchen, which, yeah, is not that quiet. And one thing that I want to point out about Leo and his crew, all of them way too slow to the draw. Yeah. They all take forever to get a shot off, it seems like. Frank hunts for Leo, finding him in the living room with a gun of his own. Frank kills him with three shots. Ataglia tries to escape the house, and Frank pursues. Outside, Carl and another henchman are arriving. In the ensuing gunfight, Frank is shot, but manages to kill the trio. Frank loosens a bulletproof vest he was wearing beneath his jacket and walks away into the night. And that is how the movie ends. And while it is commonplace for characters to wear bulletproof vests in movies since then... Back in 1981, when this film was released, it wasn't. And so there was a lot of confusion in the audience sometimes as people didn't really understand what they were watching and how Frank was mm-hmm. alive and walking around after this because they he does get blasted. weren't super familiar with the idea yeah. of bulletproof vests. But the- if you pay attention, you see him grabbing it out of the closet mm, when he's right. doing the whole thing with Jesse back at the house. It does leave you with that feeling there's going to be more to this, though. The type of guy Leo is is well-connected, and yeah, but there's some revenge coming. I but thought the same thing, but how do they know who this I, is? True. They do make a point of everyone that you see throughout the movie is killed. Like, all it, Leo's entire crew gone from the people you see. I think Mann and James Caan disagreed a little bit as to what would happen next, where Michael Mann was like, well... He's got nothing. He's got nowhere to go and nothing. And James Caan was like, well, this guy... With how resourceful he is, he could probably build his life back up to where it was because he had done it once coming out of prison. Mm -hmm. Michael Mann wanted to give the impression of Frank being a rat in a maze throughout the film, particularly in the few scenes leading up to that big heist. Metallic colors were utilized to make the city streets seem more like tunnels. This is also why Mann opted for the electronic score instead of the bluesy score he initially wanted. Only after Frank kills his oppressor, Leo, here, the score finally does morph into that bluesy rock melody, reinforcing the moment of change in the story. And finally, I think that one of the reasons why Okla becomes this essential character is that the first time Leo and Frank meet during this initial proposal Leo has, Leo says it twice that he would be Frank's father. Mm -hmm. He's using it in the sense of, I'm going to provide for you. I'll have everything for you. I'll take care of you. But it also lays out the core conflict at the root of their increasingly antagonistic relationship since, as previously shown in the film, Frank already has a beloved father figure in Okla. 
and Leo either doesn't know that or has dismissed it or whatever, but this leads to his miscalculation that Frank would appreciate being adopted into Leo's crime family and simply accept Leo making wide-ranging decisions for his quote-unquote son without even asking him. And that is not the person who Frank is. So it's a big miscalculation on Leo's part. Yeah, it feels like he way overshoots the split of what's going to be a cash payout versus what's an investment. (laughs) It's like... Oh, you think if it was 250000 maybe he would chill a little bit? I don't know, but it is a devastating amount of what the cash payout (laughs) is from this score. No, I actually think it could be 10000 short, and that wasn't going to cut it. Yeah, yeah. I think think that's that's right for the character. Yeah, right. He wants his cut. We had a deal. This is the deal. Yep. He's saying, I agreed to one job and Mm -hmm. one job only. Now everyone's dead. Although, even when they're having those conversations, like I said earlier, I swear there's a part where Leo's like, yeah, two or three jobs. Now, do you think he overreacted with Jesse just a little bit, or do you think that he had to? He had to to clear the plate. He should have told the associate, like, look, if I call you in a month, Mm -hmm. or call this number, he gives him a number, call this number in a month, and if I answer and give you this code or something, yeah, <laughs> I feel like he should have left the window open a little bit. He just blows up that thing that he had with he, Jesse and the baby, and but, it's like, I don't know, maybe he could have still salvaged that. He had to go into this with nothing to lose, I know. though. That's the whole character. Right. He talked about who he was and yeah. how he had to survive in prison, and he brings that mentality Well, it's the same thing it. even with the police. He's talking about how if we get into a situation where you're going to pinch me. You don't want to be you because I'm not going back to jail. Yeah. And having Jesse and a kid probably would complicate that type of showdown as well. Yeah, ultimately it's it's a mistake for someone like him to have weaknesses like yeah. a family. I do feel like the whole police situation would be more complicated post-Leo because now he's on their radar and he's pissed them off multiple times. There's going to be an investigation here. Well, something tells me he's not going to be sticking around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's splitting. Yeah. He's going to spend the rest of his life trying to figure out where that associate took Tuesday Weld. Yeah. (laughs) For a moment, they were happy. They had it all. So, yeah, if you haven't seen it, check it out on any of those services where it is free because I think it's a really cool crime film. The look of it is so unique and awesome. A very... Very cool score, regardless of the fact that it was nominated for a Razzie. <laughs> for I know, it's stupid. Score. And I think it is slightly underseen. Yeah. Because it is so old, and it wasn't a big hit, and it's the beginning of man's career, and it took probably another 15 years for Heat to really bring that crime movie back to that level. Yeah, because, just- yeah, obviously you had, like, Last of Mohegans and other stuff in there, too, but... This was the precursor to a lot of what man would become known for later in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it took a long time to get on my radar, certainly. Probably took a couple of viewings for me to totally appreciate it as much as I do. What are you doing? What? <clears throat> what? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. Before we sign off, we'll do a quick recommendation, which we planned out a little bit beforehand. 
to sync up a little bit. I, I'm saving everyone from Matt's boring garbage that he always does. I think does. they'd have some fun with it. <laughs> I'd like to go through all of the episodes where we've done recommendations yeah. and read yours back to you now and <laughs> see if you can tell me what they are, some of them. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I do pick some weird shit to watch, that's for sure. No, I think you just pick whatever you just watched. Well, yeah, you know, I, and I have clarified that during the recommendation section before. But these movies, these two that we're going to talk about, I have not recently watched, yeah. which is also sometimes something you can do. But I do think that I did do mine as a recommendation before. That's okay, but this yeah. fits in with... Right, right. Well, it's not yours. We're just going to do... They're okay. Both both of them are ours, even though you haven't seen one of them. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for giving me that credit. And the reason is because, as we discussed, the career of Tuesday Weld is a little hard to get into nowadays. Not that there aren't some movies you could see, but I think some of her best stuff is not that readily available. I watched a very weird movie she was in with Jack Nicholson, which I can't I think it's called A Safe Place. It's a part of that America BBS oh, yeah. story. Okay. Oof. Not good. No. Bummer. Very hippy dippy. Because <laughs> that description makes me want it to be good. It's unwatchable. Okay. But anyway, an interesting career, nevertheless. As I said, I think her two best things are Play It As It Lays, and I don't know if Looking for Mr. Goodbar is necessarily one of her best things, but she was nominated for an Oscar for it. I, I right. kind of was blown away because she's not really in it that much. I, I don't really know how they got an Oscar nomination out of that, but whatever. Those are her two primary things that are kind of unavailable, but we're going to recommend two films i'll do one first that you haven't seen okay. i walk the line which came out in 1970 it was directed by what's that dude's name frankenheimer is it john frankenheimer i think so he directed ronin and <laughs> you know yeah, ronin. Okay. yeah john frankenheimer he directed like seconds which is in the criterion collection but also the manchurian candidate mm. the original right okay things like that it's an interesting little film starring Gregory Peck and Tuesday Weld called I Walk the Line, which uses a lot of Johnny Cash music. Obviously, it's named after the song, which appears several times in the movie, too. A middle-aged sheriff in a rural Tennessee town who is upstanding. He's the moral center of the town. But he's miserable in his own marriage, and he gets mixed up with a teenager named Alma who is the daughter of a local criminal, a moonshiner-type guy. Now, Tuesday Weld, by this point, she was born in 1943, so you can do the math. She was already basically 26 or 27. She was mm. not actually a teenager. Right. But she is convincing in that Lolita-esque role. Is it a great film? No, but it's entertaining and interesting, and she's good in it. And I think that Gregory Peck was a little miscast. I think that since the film came out in 1970, it didn't have to play like a film that came out in 1956, if you know what I mean. You're right. I think it could have been a little edgier for that material. But I liked it, and I, I liked the idea of it, and I, I thought it was good, and it showcases Weld in a cool way. And then the second film we're going to talk about came out a few years earlier, mm. where she also sort of plays that sort of... True, same type of character. Lolita-esque type character in one of her several partnerships with Anthony Perkins because yeah. Perkins also appeared in Play It As It Lays. And if Gregory Peck was miscast, 
Anthony Perkins was not as a weirdo creep. Yeah. The film we're talking about is Pretty Poison, which both of these films you have to rent, unfortunately, I think. But whatever. If you like Tuesday Weld, if you like Thief and you want to see some of her earlier work, Pretty Poison, which is about kind of a a weirdo guy who gets mixed up with this high school-esque vixen. I think he's supposed to be like a guy like in his 20s, and but like never really hit it off with the ladies. Right. And he gets out of like a mental institution, but it turns out she's the one that's crazy and mm-hmm. evil in the end. That kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. They kind of have this psychotic love affair type thing or whatever. I don't know. Both of these movies are pretty entertaining. I think Pretty Poison is a better movie than I Walk the Line, but... I would say check them both out if if you're interested in Tuesday Weld. Unfortunately, when I watched I Walk the Line, it was free on Amazon Prime, but it, I don't think it's streaming on there anymore. Pretty Poison. Do you have the Blu-ray as well? I do, yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably out of print. Oh, it was but, a Twilight Time, right? Yeah. Yeah. You might be able to find a cheap copy on eBay or something, but yeah. Twilight Time seems like it doesn't really exist at all anymore. All right. So check out those. In addition to Thief, if you get a chance, follow the show on Twitter, at GreatestPod, and our email address, greatestpod at gmail.com. So just remember GreatestPod, and there you yeah. go. Then Look you for can... future emails to be potentially read on the show. Yeah, if you want to send us an email, we might read it if it fits in with our yeah. culture. <laughs> <laughs> no promises. The vibe we're trying to put out there into the world. If you have a sticker request, if you have a listener request that you'd like to buy, any of those types of things, that's where the email and the Twitter comes into it. Questions, comments, concerns, praise. Whatever you got. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. If you've not already done so, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We love to read them. That's pretty much one of the things that keeps us going. And finally, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby on there. Anything else, Matt? No. Well-covered territory today. All right. So next time, we have a listener request, and we also keep an eye out for our 2022 year in review. Give us a second. So a lot coming up in the next few weeks. Stay with us. Thanks for listening.
goodness of the biscuit with the honey sauce don't get that honey sauce on me i don't like the way it tastes with my chicken wings taste the biscuit taste the goodness of the biscuit taste the butter spread taste the goodness of the biscuit with the butter spread to get your butter spread all on me I don't like the way it mixes with my mac and cheese Cause when you're at KFC You got that special sauce to stir my curiosity Just give me a five piece meal Oh what a deal A big old box it's all for me You know I'll take coleslaw on the side I could tell you wanted to try the potato wedges. of the biscuit taste the honey sauce taste the goodness of the biscuit with the honey sauce get your honey sauce on me I don't like the way it mixes with my chicken wings get none of that honey sauce on me I don't like the way it tastes on my chicken wings Take us out, Moose. Taste the biscuit. <laughs> 